Jesus was our substitute. In what way did he substitute for us? He himself is the propitiation. He is the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. He endured the wrath of God that your sin deserved, Christian. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Are you in Christ today? If not, what's keeping you from deciding to follow Him? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 10 of a series titled, The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. In today's message, Tom continues teaching about the incredible hope that is found in the gospel. Last time you were reminded that despite God knowing every sinful thought you've ever had or action you've ever committed, at the cross, God attributed every one of those sins to Jesus Christ, treating Jesus as if He had committed your sins so that forevermore He can treat you as if you'd lived Jesus' perfect life. That's how you can be forgiven. That's the essence of the gospel. Have you come to know Christ and received this indescribable gift? Keep those questions in mind as we join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. Notice John's interesting choice of verb tense. He doesn't say he himself was the propitiation, but he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now, that doesn't mean what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that that Christ is continually sacrificed in the Mass. That's contrary to what the writer of Hebrews says later, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Instead, what he means here is that Christ's sacrifice is and always will be the only way the wrath of God can be satisfied toward our sins. And it did. Jesus fully satisfied God's wrath against our sin. Turn back to Romans chapter 3. Here's another one of those places where propitiation occurs. And here's what I want you to get. You remember the flow of Romans. The first two and a half chapters are the bad news. Here's why we need the gospel, because we're all sinners. When he gets to chapter 3, verse 21, he begins to roll out the good news. And he talks about, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, here's this righteousness that's a gift. It's talked about in the Law and the Prophets. It's the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned, and this is the way, verse 24, any of us are justified or declared right with God. It's only as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So how did Christ accomplish that redemption? Verse 25, God publicly displayed Jesus, it's talking about at the cross, God publicly displayed Jesus as a propitiation in his blood. Listen, propitiation is not only at the heart of the gospel, it is the gospel. If you don't understand it, you don't understand anything about what Christ was doing or, or what's offered you in Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says, Propitiation was necessary here in verses 25 and 26 for two reasons. Reason number one, it was to vindicate God's justice. 
Verse 25 says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Now, I don't have time to fully explain that. You can go back and listen as I was teaching through the book of Romans. I, I did that in detail. But let me give you the big picture. What he's saying here is Jesus had to die to satisfy God's wrath, even the fact that God lets a sinner live a day longer than his sin. Even the fact that God does good to sinners when they deserve his wrath. God had to vindicate his justice in being good to you, in letting you live and in doing good to you. And the only way he could vindicate it was through the death of Christ. But that isn't all propitiation was about. Verse 26 says there was another reason. For the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he could be just and at the same time, could be the justifier of ungodly people who have faith in Jesus. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God so that you could be justified. This is the gospel. Don't ever sell propitiation short. Jesus was our substitute. In what way did he substitute for us? He himself is the propitiation. He is the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. He endured the wrath of God that your sin deserved, Christian. Think about it this way. On the cross, God credited to Jesus' account every single sin that every single person who would ever believe in Jesus would ever commit. And having credited those to Jesus' account, God declared him guilty of your sin. And then for those six dark hours, Jesus experienced the full fury of the wrath of God against every sin of his people. He fully satisfied God's offended justice. There's a great picture of this in Scripture. It's a picture of a cup, a cup of wine. And in the cup, inside the cup, is God's wrath against sin. And Scripture says every single person who sinned has the cup and every person must drink it. For example, Job 21.20, let the wicked drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Psalm 11.6, upon the wicked God will rain coals of fire. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75.8, the cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Listen to this. Surely, all the wicked of the earth, and that's all of us, must drain and drink down its dregs. In other words, there's a cup in the hand of God that represents his wrath against sin, and every sinner has that cup and will drink it. Isaiah 51, 17. Isaiah writes to the people of Jerusalem, you have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. This happens in Revelation. Turn to Revelation 14. Revelation 14, and look at verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. 
This is the wrath of God against sin. If you have sinned, and you have, there's a cup waiting for you, and you must and will drink it. But here's the good news. Our God, who is perfectly holy, who is perfectly just, is also a God of amazing compassion and grace. And the God who is so holy and just reconciles sinners to himself by letting his son drink the cup that we deserved and had earned. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus went a little beyond his disciples. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. What was Jesus talking about? What was in the cup? It wasn't his physical suffering. Listen, a lot of, a lot of Christian martyrs have died gladly suffering for their Lord. If I could put this respectfully, Jesus wasn't wimping out over the physical suffering ahead of him. No, he's talking about the cup of the wrath of God. And he says, Father, if there's any other way for you to be satisfied, then let this cup pass from me. But if not, your will be done, not mine. And Jesus got up from praying in that garden and he went to meet his accusers and he, was, he had three Jewish trials and three Roman trials. He was beaten. He was prepared for execution. He was put up on the cross. And for those six lonely hours, he drank the cup, your cup. And he drank it all so that there's not a single drop, Christian, left for you. It's gone. And it's gone forever. If you're in Christ... You're not under God's wrath today. Romans 6.36 says, He who does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. But he who believes in the Son today has eternal life. In addition, you're not going to experience God's wrath in the future. I love 1 Thessalonians 5.9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved in the future from the wrath of God through him. Christian, you're never going to face God's wrath. And you're never going to face God's wrath eternally in the lake of fire. It's reserved for those who don't know Christ. Listen to, to Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, that will never, ever be your future. Why? Because Jesus drank the cup you earned and you deserved, and he drank it all. There's one final truth about propitiation, and that is it is the only propitiation. Christ's propitiation is the only propitiation for all people everywhere. Look at verse 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, first of all, we need to be clear on what this cannot mean. It cannot mean that Christ satisfied the wrath of God for every person without exception. Why? Because that leads to two very unbiblical results. And you end up on one or the other if you believe he satisfied the wrath of God for every person without exception. First of all, you, you basically accuse God of injustice. 
Because what it means in the end is that God will eventually punish people for whom Christ already satisfied his wrath. And that's unjust. Or it leads you to universalism, believing that every person will eventually be saved, which is clearly unbiblical. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So it can't mean everybody's eventually going to be saved. There are going to be those who reject the gospel who will suffer eternal destruction, it's called here, away from the presence of the Lord. So it cannot mean that. Secondly, it does not mean that Christ made propitiation possible for all men. Now, let me just say that I understand Christians debate what's called the extent of the atonement. For whom did Christ die? Let me, let me tell you what we all agree on. We all agree that Christ's death is sufficient to save all men right? I mean, I hope nobody here would disagree with that. Secondly, we all agree that not everyone will be saved because the Scripture clearly teaches that. Most of us would agree that there are unlimited aspects to Christ's death. As I just showed you in Romans 3, in Christ's death, he purchased the, the right for God to do good to sinners and to let them live without, without harming his justice. But when it comes to the question for whom did Christ die or the extent of the atonement, there is disagreement. Now, let me just say that this isn't the place to deal with that at length, and the elders are agreed that this question is not going to be a source of division in our church body. But if you're interested in, in following the sort of track my own mind has gone down and where I believe what I believe the Scriptures teach, you can listen to a message in the Anchored series, it's online, entitled The Atonement Part 2, where I address this issue of the extent of the atonement. But this verse does not mean that Christ's death provided potential propitiation for everyone without exception, and it can't mean that for two reasons. First of all, John says here that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of this other group, whoever they are, in the same way that he's the propitiation for our sins. And Paul explicitly says that Christ is only the propitiation for those who have faith in him. Romans 3:25, God displayed Christ publicly on the cross as a propitiation through faith. So it it can't mean that. Number three, it could mean that Christ's propitiation is sufficient for all people without exception. And of course, as I said, that's true. If God had intended to save every person on this planet or 10,000 other planets, the death of Christ would have been enough. There didn't need to be any other sacrifice. But of course, Scripture teaches that while the death of Christ is sufficient for all, it is only efficient for the elect, those whom God chose in eternity past. That's a different message or a different series for a different time. Go listen to Ephesians chapter 1. It could mean it's sufficient for all. Four, it could mean there is a universal aspect to Christ's propitiation. And as I said from Romans 3.25, that's true. At the cross, God vindicated his justice in extending what we call common grace to sinners. But number five, it likely means here in verse two that Christ's death is the only propitiation for all people everywhere. Now, the reason I say it likely means that is because there's only one other passage in John's writings that's worded like this one. It's John 11, verses 51 and 52. 
It, it reads this way, now Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, listen to this, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, it's both for the, the immediate people to whom he's writing and for people all over the world as well. In John 10, verses 15 and 16, Christ says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So when John says in chapter 2, verse 2, not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world, he likely means Christ's death is the only way anyone on this planet can be saved from God's wrath. There's no other means. It's like John 4, 42. This one is the Savior of the world. doesn't mean he's going to rescue everybody on this planet. It means he's the only Savior. In 1 John 4, 14, the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Listen, Jesus is the only Savior for this planet. And his satisfaction of God's wrath at the cross is the only propitiation for all people everywhere. There's no other way for God's wrath to be satisfied than that. This is what the Scriptures teach about propitiation. Now, so what? What do we do with this? How do you apply the doctrine, the great biblical doctrine of propitiation? If you've never repented of your sins, you've never believed in Christ, let me say this as directly as the Scripture says it, but with no pleasure in it. I just need you to know that somebody's going to drink the cup that your sins have earned. And you only have two choices, only two. Either you will refuse the offer, the gracious offer that God makes in his son. You'll refuse the father's love in sending his son. And you will say, no, I like my sin too much. I'm going to stay where I am. Thank you very much. In which case, you will drink the cup forever. You heard the passages I read. That's not something in a, you know, a, a distant past era. That's God's truth for today. That's still as true today as when the Scriptures were written. <coughs> so either you're going to drink it or you're going to accept God's gracious offer in the gospel. You're going to repent and believe in Jesus, and God will apply the propitiation Christ accomplished at the cross to you. You say, what does that look like? Well, I can tell you exactly what it looks like because our Lord described it. In Luke chapter 18, verses 13 and 14, you remember he tells the story of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. And listen to what Jesus says. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know what he was saying? That word, be merciful? Literally, he said, God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. It's our word. You see, when did they go up to the temple to pray? At the hours of sacrifice, morning and evening every day. So he's, he's there to pray at the hour of sacrifice just within his line of sight. He can see the animal being killed. He can see its blood being poured out on the altar. He can see it being burned. And he says, God, let your just wrath against my sin be satisfied by the sacrifice. That's exactly what you have to do. You have to humble yourself like that man 
Acknowledge you have nothing God wants. You have no bargaining chips. All you can do is throw yourself on the mercy of God, beat your chest, and say, God, I only have one hope. Let the sacrifice of Jesus Christ satisfy your justice against my sin. And here's the good news. Jesus said this, I tell you, that man went to his house justified. In a moment, you can be right with God. That's what Jesus says. The moment you're willing to humble yourself like that and accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you are justified before God. You are declared right with God by God's act, not yours. And, and Jesus finishes this. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You just have to humble yourself before God and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I hope that will be true of you today. If you have trusted in Christ, and most of us here have trusted in Jesus Christ, we've repented and believed in Christ, how do you apply what we just learned about propitiation? Well, don't forget the context. 1 John 2.2 is not a doctrinal dissertation. It's helping us know how to respond when we sin. When we sin as Christians, we must confess our sins. Chapter 1, verse 9, we must trust Christ's intercession as the assurance of a relational forgiveness with the Father. Chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 2, we must trust in Christ's propitiation as the ground of our justification. You see, at the heart of the gospel that you believe, Christian, is this great exchange. God credited your sins. He knows every one of them. He knows every sinful thought you've ever had, every sinful word you've ever spoken. He knows every sinful act you've ever committed or ever will. And at the cross, God credited every single one of those sins to Jesus Christ. And on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had committed your sins. And that's how we can be forgiven. And when we believe in his son, God does something else amazing. He credits Christ's perfect obedience. 33 years of perfect keeping of God's law. God takes that from Christ's account and he credits it to your account. And now and forever, he will treat you like Jesus deserves to be treated. So on the cross, Jesus was treated like you deserve so that forever you could be treated like he deserves. That's what you have to remind yourself of when you sin. It doesn't change your status. You don't need to be re-justified. You need to come back and say, Lord, I hate my sin. Forgive me for that sin. I never want to commit it again. I hate it. Please help me grow in holiness. Help me be more like Jesus. But thank you that the ground of my acceptance is not my obedience, but Christ. The ground of my acceptance is not that I can satisfy you for the sin I've just committed, but that he did. Thank you, God that he drank the cup, and he drank it all. That's how we're to apply this truth. You see, when we sin, we find hope in this great exchange. We, we sing it, and I love those words. He as though I, accursed and left alone, I as though he, embraced and welcomed home. That's the heart of the gospel. That's propitiation. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 10 of a series titled The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Tom will bring you part 11 next time, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, for those who are in Christ, our hope of forgiveness of sin and eternal life is secure, isn't it? It is secure. In fact, it is as secure as the Word and character of God, because God stakes both of those on His promise of forgiveness to the one who's repentant of his sin and trusts in his son. In fact, you remember the writer of Hebrews tells us that God wanted to make sure that we understood the certainty of this promise. And so he made a covenant. We have the new covenant promises in which God promises not to remember our sin again forever. We are forgiven now and forever because of the work of Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul puts it. In Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now, right now and forever, no condemnation, no guilty verdict, no sentence of death, no penalty for the one who is in Christ Jesus. Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.